We're very lucky today to have Duncan Wood with us on the podcast. Duncan is the director of the Wilson Center's Mexico Institute and a top expert on Mexico. He's the author or editor of 12 books and more than 30 chapters and articles. From 1996 to 2012, he was a professor and the director of the International Relations Program at ITAM in Mexico City. He's also a lifelong fan of Liverpool Football Club and so must be very pleased by the news that the Premier League is starting in just a few weeks. Welcome, Duncan. Thank you, Chris. Yes, and I am delighted to, uh, to, to know that on the 17th of June, things will start up again. Fantastic. Okay, so a lot to talk about. Um, the national oil company Pemex has reported 74 virus deaths so far, which, unless I'm mistaken, is the highest for any oil company in the world. And it, it might sort of be a, a microcosm for the rest of the country, which has now seen uh, over 8,000 coronavirus deaths and about 500 new fatalities each day. And yet the president, Lopez Obrador, says the virus is under control and the country is actually set to open up next week. How worried are you, Duncan, about the situation there? Um, you know, let's let's take it in different tranches here. I mean, overall in Mexico, I'm, I'm, I'm very worried about the situation. I have been worried about uh, the public health situation since we first began to learn about COVID-19 at the beginning of the year. It was clear to me that this would have a deep impact in Mexico in terms of public health. And of course, as now we're seeing also in the economy. That's something which, you know, is partly uh, down to the uh, historical underinvestment in public health. Partly it's down to certain cultural questions there. It's much more common to have uh, large gatherings in Mexico, uh, extended families, etc. It's the culture of the abrazos y besos, the hugs and kisses that you see. Uh, but then it's also, you know, very much to do with the with the economy. It's down to the fact that, uh, you know, in Mexico, it's estimated that around sixty percent of the workforce is in the informal economy, and so if they don't work, they don't eat. Mm. We've continued to see images throughout the pandemic of the Mexico City metro being packed on a daily basis, and I think there's a there's another more insidious problem that we've seen, and this is much more to do with the current administration in Mexico, and that is that we really cannot have any kind of faith in the uh, reporting of the cases of, of coronavirus and certainly in the number of deaths. We saw this early on with cases being reported of atypical pneumonia and the government denying that that was coronavirus. And now we're, we're learning through various investigative reports that the government has been under-reporting the number of, uh, of COVID-19 deaths in Mexico City hospitals at a, you know, at a dramatic rate. So I think that, you know, overall, I think we're seeing in Mexico as a country, this is a, 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 a grave problem. Yes. And there is a combination of uh, historical factors, cultural factors, economic factors, and things that are quite specific to the current administration. But let me just say one thing, Chris, before we move on, and that is that you, know, you mentioned at the beginning Pemex. And in some ways, the fact that Pemex is, uh, is seeing these high mortality rates is not surprising because... Pemex is not being run well and hasn't been run well for a long time. They have problems in terms of administration, in terms of procedures. Yeah. It's also perhaps not a surprise because you have a government which is committed to raising oil production from Pemex any way they can and you know, throwing in huge amounts of money investment into, those, uh, into existing oil fields. But it is a surprise because traditionally Pemex has been a company or a government agency for most of its life that has invested heavily in uh, the health of its employees. It has one of the best health services in Mexico. 
you know, it has its own hospitals and doctors, etc. And so you would have thought that this would be a service that they could provide to their employees. And as we've heard now, not just in terms of the overall figures, but anecdotally, we've heard of cases of Pemex workers who are being told that if they don't go out onto the rigs, then they're not going to get paid, even though they're sick. And that mm -hmm. kind of uh, threat that's coming through, I think, is, is something which is not just a, a, a tragedy, but it's really a betrayal of the responsibility of, of, of management and leadership at the company. Yeah. And it's, it's also extraordinary given the fact that sort of a pillar of the president's policy has been to make Pemex great again. And, and clearly this is a, a big failure there. The, the, the government has, has talked about, or AMLO has talked about the fact that, you know, GDP is perhaps not a good indicator how, of how things are going. And to be fair to him, there are some metrics that do look good. The peso has somehow maintained its strength and his approval rating is, is fantastic. But then on the other hand, governments around the world are sort of trying to spend their way out of this. And Mexico is, is cutting back, is sticking to its sort of austerity. How do you how do you gauge the state of Mexico's economy now, Duncan, and perhaps as it comes out of the coronavirus panic? You know, it's such an important question, Chris. If we begin with the question of, of whether or not GDP is a, an adequate and accurate measurement of economic and human development in a country, it's clear the answer is no. It can only be partial at best, but we do know that whilst it's not sufficient, it is a necessary component. And any administration who says that it doesn't matter is really deserting their responsibility. Secondly, uh, in terms of the impact on the, on the Mexican economy, it was clear early on in this crisis that there was going to be a deep impact on the Mexican economy. We heard ever escalating estimations of the, uh, of the cost of this uh, pandemic uh, in terms of uh, economic growth. To begin with, we heard people saying that there was going to be a 5% contraction in Mexico. Then people got up to the 7, 7.5%. Then we heard about 9, 10, 11%. Right now, you know, those 9% uh, estimations are looking quite fair. Uh, I remember having a conversation with my colleagues early on in the crisis, and a figure had come out that there was going to be a 7.5% contraction. And mm -hmm. they were all shocked by it. And I said, look, I, I, I have to tell you that I, I worry that that is a conservative estimate. And I think that's what we're seeing at this point in time. Part of the reason for this is, of course, that the, uh, the Mexican government is not spending what it should be spending in terms of supporting the economy and in terms of uh, getting uh, the, the economy reactivated afterwards. And, uh, you know, if you compare it with other OECD nations, other countries of Latin America, and you see that it's shocking how little the Mexican government is actually spending. And, uh, you know, mm. numbers that came out yesterday from folks at the central bank have emphasized this. You know, I'm just looking uh, at the chart right now. And if we do the comparison between a, a number of countries on this chart that was shared by a deputy uh, governor of, the, of Banxico yesterday, you know, Mexico comes in last on this chart in terms of the percentage of GDP that the government is dedicating to uh, fiscal measures in response to COVID-19. And it's, it's bewildering in many ways that the government is not spending more. But in fact, there's something here about uh, the president, Andres Manuel López Obrador's AMLO's psychology. He is infamous now for his obsession with uh, what he calls Republican austerity. 
Analysts such as Viridiana Rios in Mexico have argued that this comes out of the experience that he observed with Foba Proa, a bank rescue program after the tequila crisis in 94 and 95. And he says he never wants to see that kind of corruption again. But I think there's more here. I think that uh, the president also sees an opportunity in this crisis that if the economy was to shrink, most presidents, most leaders would say that was a bad thing for them. But Andres Manuel, mm. I, I believe, sees that this is a uh, an opportunity for him in the political sense, because as everybody in the economy suffers and as the big, powerful economic actors see their influence retrenched because of a recession, the government will be the, the largest actor left. It'll be the uh, the lender of last resort. It'll be the spender of last resort. And that will be his opportunity to really centralize economic power even further. Well, that's a fascinating take. You know, as Lopez Obrador does very little to sort of spend his way out of the, the crisis, his government has been doing a lot in the energy sector to sort of ruffle feathers and, and, and change rules. The, the latest change has really hit the renewable energy sector in particular. Do you see Lopez Obrador, Lopez, AMLO ever getting more pragmatic or, or do energy folks just sort of have to adapt to him? Yeah, it, it all depends what you mean by pragmatic. Uh, there's been this uh, ongoing debate since you know, it became clear that AMLO was going to win the election in July of 2018. You know, throughout the first half of that year, once it was clear what the result was going to be, people were saying, well, is he an ideologue? Is he a pragmatist? And you know, the, the, the more wily analysts have said, yes, he's a, he's, he's, he's a bit of both. It depends upon the AMLO that you meet that day. But I think that there's something more nuanced here. I think it's that, uh, you know, in terms of economic pragmatism, uh, AMLO is not really a pragmatist. Um, it's not that he's an ideologue either. It's that he has certain fixed ideas about the economy and he's not going to abandon those, even though reality points him in another direction. But he is pragmatic in terms of politics. He's pragmatic in terms of the impact on public opinion. He's pragmatic in terms of the impact on his ability to govern Mexico. And that's, I think, where we see the opportunity for those people who really want to push him in another direction is to prove to him that his current course is actually going to undermine his success as president and will cause him political embarrassment. Now, we've mm. seen this before. The uh, Texas Tuxpan gas pipeline that was built by uh, uh, TransCanada and, uh, and Ianova, when the president decided to support CFE in challenging the terms of that contract, uh, he believed that he was going to win that negotiation or that, that, that argument. When it became clear to him through the intervention of certain key people, when it became clear to him that, he's, that he was much more likely to lose that and it would be a political embarrassment, he went to the negotiating table and he said, okay, let's find a mutually acceptable outcome to this. Right now on renewable energies, the president seems to be sticking to his guns despite the fact that courts have provided the uh, renewable energy generators with injunctions, or as they call them in Mexico, amparos, mm -hmm. to allow them to continue supplying energy to the, uh, the national grid. But I believe that this is this is only sort of the opening uh, salvo in a in a long battle over the future mm. of renewables in Mexico. Today, in his morning press conference, his mañanera, he pointed to the 
what he claims that is the corruption of the energy sector. He pointed to the fact that you've got former government uh, officials, uh, you know, ministers of energy, etc., who have worked with some of these companies. You know, a perfectly normal thing in any country around the world that former politicians go onto the boards of energy companies or act as advisors at different points. Um, but Andrews Manuel has a has a has a deep deeply held ideological philosophical problem and and most worryingly from my point of view he sees this as a moral problem I and mean, we are in the land of morality now for andres manuel and that's why i don't think we're going to see him turning towards a more pragmatic stance anytime soon i mean and it is interesting because you would assume that the moral take would be to move towards the energy transition and clearly he uh, is very far away from that. Last week, Duncan, you moderated a panel at the La Jolla Energy Conference, um, and I thought Jeremy Martin did a great job putting it all online this year. I really enjoyed it. And on your panel, Warren Levy from one of the the ENP companies said that it's actually a good time to invest in natural gas in in Mexico, at least from a upstream standpoint. How do you respond to that? And and what's what's your take on sort of the government's view of natural gas? You know, as we, as we all know, Mexico has huge reserves of natural gas. And for many years, we've, uh, we've been talking about the potential for Mexico to, uh, to develop those reserves. The problem is, is that the price for natural gas really isn't conducive to a large-scale development of gas. If you have associated gas, gas that's coming along with oil, uh, which is what we see in many places in the United States, where essentially gas is a byproduct of shale exploration, you're getting oil out of the ground, then it makes a lot of sense. And that's why we've got these uh, enormous supplies of natural gas at very low price in the United States. In Mexico, things are more complicated. It's going to be more expensive to produce it. You're probably not going to get the same oil production coming out of those uh, shale fields. And so you know, it's, it's a much less attractive proposition for a lot of people. Does it make sense to develop the uh, indigenous uh, gas supplies in the country in the long term? Yes, it does. But uh, the economics aren't there right now. And of course, for, you know, in the case of Mexico, where you have the the nation's, uh, the national oil company, uh, Pemex, as the largest gas producer in the country, it hasn't been able to invest in infrastructure development. It hasn't been able to invest in capturing a lot of the gas which is associated with oil production. There is a huge amount of flaring in Mexico, which is bad for the environment and a horrible waste of the country's riches. And so, mm. you know, I think in the long term, we are going to see Mexican natural gas developed. But right now, I don't see much prospect for it. And certainly, the government is doing nothing to make the environment more conducive for private investment in natural gas. Hmm. Interesting. Okay, final question here, Duncan. Looking out into the future, how do you see the energy sector evolving over the rest of the, the sexenium? You know, I, I see a, a couple of uh, potential scenarios. Uh, there's the one where the government reaches a fiscal crisis, it reaches a legitimacy crisis, and ultimately its plans for expanding oil production have failed. And that will be the time when perhaps the government decides to be more pragmatic, but it has to be. And I think that we'll, we, if that happens, then we will reach a point where uh, the government is more willing to consider those kind of joint ventures, the famous farm outs between Pemex and the private sector. 
But right now, I have to say, I don't see that happening. I see that the government is uh, heading towards another scenario, one in which we're seeing ever more restrictive conditions being put upon the hydrocarbon sector. I think we're seeing the use of the regulatory organizations, the autonomous or supposedly autonomous bodies, such as the CRE, such as ASEA, such as the SENASE, and probably at some point we're going to see Senegas as well. Mm. Now, these institutions that were either created by the energy reform, reform in 2013 or were strengthened by the energy reform of 2013, they are now really bending to the will of the president. And so without having to go through a repeal of the energy reform of 2013, which would require a constitutional uh, reform again, and the president doesn't have the numbers to do that right now, he's going to undermine the conditions for the rest of his mandate. Because I see a man who is ever more committed to his goal of centralizing hydrocarbons production in the national oil company, because that, in his opinion, gives him greater control um, of the country as a whole. Well, on that sobering note, let's end this uh, podcast. Thanks so much, Duncan. I really appreciate your time as always. Thanks a lot, Chris. Thank you so much for listening to Natural Gas Intelligence Hub and Flow podcast. Again, this is Chris Lenton, the editor of the Mexico Gas Price Index, a daily service that sheds light on the natural gas market in Mexico. If you're interested in knowing more about the Mexican natural gas market, visit naturalgasintel.com and do a search for Mexico or click on the Mexico tab. We have tons of insightful news, commentary, columns, and pricing data that expand on what we've talked about. It is our belief here at NGI that market transparency empowers markets, businesses, and communities. And that is what we are trying to achieve with this podcast. If you like us, please do follow us, give us a rating, and leave a comment. We're so excited to connect with you and look forward to the next time. In the meantime, stay safe.